Okay, warriors, you are listening to Unqualified Therapists. Remember, stay wild and weird. Hey, warriors, this is Amy. And I'm Sarah. We are the hosts of The Unqualified Therapist. We are not here to give you advice. We are here to tell you our stories, share your stories, and bring on the professionals from time to time. Mental health is complicated, and we know that from our personal experience. We believe in professional therapy. Both Sarah and I use that on our own healing journeys. But we also know it isn't one size fits all. The stigma surrounding mental illness can make us feel alone. We are not alone. You are not alone. And you're listening to The Unqualified Therapist Sync. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Unqualified Therapist. Today we have a really special episode, and before we jump into the interview, we're going to give you just a little bit of background. It was December 31st, 1989, in Mansfield, Ohio, and 11-year-old Collier Boyle had been fast asleep. He awoke with a start when he heard a disturbingly loud thud, and then another, Terrified, he stayed in bed as slow footsteps proceeded down the hall toward his room and paused to listen at his door. His gut told him to stay in bed and keep his eyes closed, and he just listened. The next morning, worried about what had happened, he raced to his parents' bedroom looking for his mother. When he'd only found his three-year-old sister, he asked his father, Where's Mommy? His dad, John Boyle, responded, Mommy went away for a little vacation, Collier. It was with this statement that he knew his mom wasn't coming home. It will be 25 days before they found her body buried beneath a home in Pennsylvania, a home his father had bought for his pregnant mistress and himself to start their new life in. Collier would eventually be the one to put his father in prison by being persistent with the detective, finding a picture of his father's new home in Erie, PA, and testifying in court. Today, we're speaking with Collier Landry, who uses his middle name as his last name now in a move of empowerment and independence. We're not here to discuss the grisly details of the murder, but to hear Collier's story of healing. It is a powerful one, and we can all take something away from his strength, persistence, and willingness to be vulnerable. As we get to know Collier, his gregarious personality comes through right away. We laughed and joked as trauma survivors do together, but one thing he said really hit hard. There are people who dig for the dirt and leave once they get it. I have like 24 full hours for the last 24 weeks of my Instagram lives that people can just go and find and just probably pull segments for like cancel culture. (laughs) I don't ever say anything bad. I don't ever say anything bad, but I just, you know, I do talk about my dating life and I'm sure I did talk about the, 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 the therapist in that. And uh, my experience of her, I did this just this last week and she came to the house and, but, and she had mentioned to me when she came over the other week, she said, well, you, um, you know, I, I, I just heard you talking about your dumpster fire of dating life. She's like, were you referring to me? And I was like, well, 
I was like, well, kind of, but like my whole life is public. So I was like, I didn't mention your name or who you are. or Like I didn't mention you. I just was referring yeah. to my dating because people love to hear that my dating life is a train wreck because it's part of like the trauma thing too. It's like, <laughs> you, and, and honestly, like the whole th- the whole point was she asked me. She's like, well, you know, you find it really hard to connect with people, or or you, I feel like you're you're just not letting yourself go. So I did let myself go, and then she ghosted me, and I said to her, I said, you know, the thing is that that sort of adds the insult to injuries. Like it's fine if you don't want to if you don't want to date me or whatever i don't care she's like, no i just adore you love and keeps calling me love and babe and this, and this i'm like no i'm like i'm like but here's the thing like if you ask me to open myself up and then i do and then you literally right after that ghost me after you got what you wanted that's not cool and then you wonder why i'm guarded with my feelings people because you've been through something that is so mm-hmm. extraordinary in its circumstances and especially like my case of being, well, I mean, your, y'all's cases too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, we're here for a reason, right? Um, and talking about this material. But I think what's so extreme that people then who um, who have been through mild, what we call mild trauma or, or not a lot of hardship in their lives, then they project something onto you. Like it's so, yeah. okay, you must be this way. And I think that's the thing that's, that's the sort of stigma that we're always fighting through, at least for me. And that was, that was carried with my whole life. Living in the small town where it all happened brought a new set of issues as he dealt with the constant spotlight through a narrow lens. You know, I was raised in the small town where the murder happened, where I testified against my father, where I was active in, you know, leading the police to my mother's body, essentially. You know, no one believed me except for one detective that my mother was dead or that my mother was, it wasn't just a missing persons case that she got in a fight with my father and left us. And I, um, you know, so I was raised on that. I was on television testing and fighting a trial. So again, back to this sort of projection of things on, you know, growing up in that spotlight and then people just are, oh yeah, he's just fucked up or he's just, um, we feel so sorry for him and we treat him like, I don't know. I never really knew how people were treating me, right? So are you treating me a certain mm-hmm. way because you like me for who I am? Or are you treating me a certain way because of uh, uh, of what has happened to me? And, and I didn't ever want my circumstances mm-hmm. to continually lead me in a room, you know? And it'd be like, mm-hmm. you know, this, oh, that's, the, that's the kid, that's the, that's the kid, you know? Yeah. And that shit gets old. He was able to find healing through a change of scenery and through artistic and creative outlets. It was all I wanted to do was to get out of my small town, right? And and get away from Ohio and and come to a place like Los Angeles and literally came out here because I loved it. It was where where the entertainment industry was, but the weather was nice. It's really the big benefit, right? And I live by the ocean and it's amazing. But the thing is, is that when you... Um, when you come from that sort of trauma and you get away from it, then you can actually have a sense of like, I wanted people to like Collier for Collier. I wanted Collier, I, I wanted my work to speak for itself, my merits to speak for themselves. I didn't want you to like me because of something that happened to me or that you that you saw me testifying against my father or you knew all this stuff about me because I, I wasn't guarded about my story, but I wasn't open about it. Like everyone, the, everyone knew the, the sort of periphery details, which were call your father murdered his mom when he was a kid. That's it. Like that's all they knew. So I operated under that sort of cloak, if you will, for 10 years, at least 
10, 12 years. And only people that were the closest to me, I'm talking about like intimate partners, a girlfriend. I mean, there was probably five or six people that actually knew my story in Los Angeles, like the full sort of story and not even the full story, but just the, the real dirt of it. Right. And those were the only people. So I, I, I moved to Los Angeles to tell the story and I thought, okay, you know, I went to music school. You see the guitars behind me things. I went to music school and I thought, okay, it's either, this is either going to go down one of two ways. I'm going to become a rock star, become famous and tell my story and help people. Or I'm going to become a filmmaker, make a movie and help and, and use, use my story to help people. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was either one of those paths. That was it for me. So I came out here with that sort of mentality or I came out with out here with that exact mentality is using art to move myself through the trauma that was always what got me through school that is what got me through uh, my whole process because my mother was very active in my life in in, as far as you know sending me to like when school would end and summer would come i'd get a week to play with my friends and i'd go back off to summer school and take like art classes science classes music classes whatever that was so my mom my mother was very focused on my arts education and so that was what i gravitated to toward as an artistic child, right? And so naturally using the arts as my form of therapy to move through all of that, whether it be music, stage performances, writing, uh, um, you know, uh, singing, film, photography, all these things, they all kind of melded together when I moved out here and I sort of, you know, I stumbled my way through it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a hundred percent figuring it out because when you literally, I mean, that's all I do. It's all I've done since I've, I've been out here. That was the whole driving factor for me is, is using my story in an artistic way to not only heal myself, but to help other people. And obviously, you know, I, I gravitated towards film and became a cinematographer and, you know, I met people along the way and I said, you know, I had seen a film in 1999 called American History X. I saw that film in a theater in Northridge, California, suburb of Los Angeles. It was with one of my friends who I went to college with, actually. I was out here visiting. I said, whoever made that film understands the consequences of violence. I want them to help me tell my story. Flash forward almost 10 years later, my girlfriend at the time, we have this little bungalow in Hollywood we're living in. And she comes into my little makeshift office and she says, this movie producer contacted me on MySpace and is doing a coffee table book and wants to photograph me for it. I was like, oh, cool. I was like, what movies has he done? And she starts rattling off these films and she gets to American History. And I said, American History X? And she said, yeah. I said, let's meet him. And that ended up being my friend, John Morsey. And, you know, we became friends. He was involved in the film business. I told him, you know, hey, I really want to learn the film business. I'm getting into you know, make, being a filmmaker. And a couple of years later, I mean, we were friends the whole time. And he sort of, knew, again, was one of those people that knew the periphery details of my story, right? But not the all the nitty gritty. He was looking for a project. He, he wanted to make something really silly. And I was like, we're not doing that. I was like, what we can do is I want to do a project about the consequences of violence, a docu-series about the consequences of violence in America. Because at that time, and ever since I was a child, after all of this occurred, the trial is done. I'm back in the foster care system. I'm finally adopted. My whole family is still not a part of my life. They've abandoned me, just like I tell everyone, you know, because I went in because 
when my father was arrested, I went into foster care because not none of my relatives on my mother's or my father's side wanted anything to do with me. And for whatever reason, and still don't, you know, to this day, um, it's very hard for them. And I think that, you know, when I look back on that as an adult, people process trauma different ways, right? Some people are able to handle it. Some people aren't. Collier was able to use his story to educate a big-time Hollywood director on a very overlooked aspect of true crime, the wave the violence leaves behind. I said, you know, I had been passionate since I was a child. Like, we don't look at the consequences of violence. The gavel hits, the bad guy goes to jail, the victim is dead, the state gets its restitution. We say, next, we don't look at the consequences, which now is very is a very, you know, thing that's happening for the last, like, five, six years, everybody's like, oh, what has happened to the families and all this, you know, not quite, but it's, it's getting to that point. But back then there was none of that. It was on Dateline. It was this happened or it was forensic files or whatever it was. Right. And so I became very impassioned by this. And I was like this, we need to discuss this because this is what's actually going to make the change. This is what's going to bring about the conversations, having these conversations and understanding the consequences of violence. And so he's sitting there, he wants to make this silly thing. And I said, no, I said, this is what we need to do. We're going to do, I want to do a docu-series about the consequences of violence. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. I said, here's the best news. I own the rights to the pilot. There's a book sitting behind me on a shelf. It's a news, book of newspaper clippings. I gave it to him. I said, this is my life. So he takes it, you know, calls me the next day and he goes, are you fucking kidding me? He goes, I had no idea. And I'm like, oh well, my gosh. yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I mean, like, I don't tell anybody this. And he goes, <laughs> yeah. he goes, this is your, are you, are you fucking kidding me? It's like, how are you functioning? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm functioning, you know, and at the time, and I wasn't really that functional. I was like 30 years old and still trying to sort out life and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and figuring out what it looks like for me. And I was, I was, you know, I wouldn't say I was lost, but I was, you know, taking on a new endeavor in the film industry and figuring out what that looked like. So, you know, we're all figuring out life. I'm still figuring out life. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, but it was a great time. And I, and, and he goes, you know, I know someone who I think would be interested in this. She just did her first scripted feature film, but she's won two Oscars for documentaries. And, and he says, and her name is Barbara Koppel. That was 2009, 2010. And, um, you know, Several years later, we made a murder in Mansfield, directed yeah. by two-time Oscar winner Barbara Koppel, <laughs> and it was, as of right now, the greatest accomplishment of my life, by far. When you experience a trauma of this magnitude, finding purpose can be crucial to your healing journey. Um, as far as doing something with that story, I mean, the greatest thing for me was standing up for my mother in the face of my father as an 11 year old child mm -hmm. saying, you're not going to get away with this. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't call the police. Yeah. I won't call the police. I'll have somebody mm -hmm. else do that and mm -hmm. I'll get, and I'll figure out a way to get them the information, bringing the detective to my school. So nobody mm -hmm. knew about it, telling him, searching for clues, finding the photo of the house with my father's girlfriend, telling them about it, which is ultimately where they dug my mother's body up from the basement mm -hmm. of in another state, your state, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And, you know, all of these things like that would be the great, that would be the by far and away the greatest accomplishment. But as far as me creatively and professionally, it was making the film. 
and seeing that. And it's it is weird because I'm in this sort of situation where I'm helping another friend do the exact same thing with her film as I was, you know, I've been up for, you know, five days straight doing it. Do, putting this edit together and onlining everything is what we call in the industry when you put everything together and deliver it. And it's like, I'm reliving that whole process in my head a lot of like, this is the way you, you know, as an artist that we deal with this, we, we yeah. have to create something out of it. And yes. ultimately that creation is what, is what I feel at least is what brings me through the trauma, right? Because yes. for me, mm -hmm. I wanted to do two things when I made the film. The first is heal myself, figure a way mm -hmm. how that does it and get my answer from my father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The second was speak to that child who's 12 years old, yeah. sitting in foster care, having been abandoned by his entire family with strangers in, in a, non, a, a not very good situation realizing that he's about ready that he he has a choice right now to testify against his father who has a high-powered legal team and one of two things are going to happen and both of them are not good one is his father gets off and then he takes custody of his son back and then for the rest of his life he reminds the son on how you tried to get me to put me in prison to murder your mother or i end up in a ditch somewhere along the road mm -hmm. shortly thereafter the second thing is, is I lose my father. I lose my whole family, which I'd already done anyways. And my whole life is like, I don't, I don't have any solid ground. I'm standing on quicksand, right? And, but I felt, I still feel every day that doing the right thing, testifying what I knew, you know, I testified at a trial for two days and, you know, told the truth and everybody, you know, some people say to me, well, you know, it just, it just, you were so good. It just looks like so rehearsed and just there, you know, are you sure you weren't good? People say this to me all the time, just yesterday on, on YouTube, well, you just, uh, you, are you sure you, it looks like you were coached? And I said, I said, here's the thing. The easiest thing to remember in life is the truth. Mm -hmm. yep. So when you speak the truth, it just rolls off your tongue. It's right. so pure. It flows because it's easy to remember. When I watched you testify, uh, what came to me is the deep, deep love and respect for your mom. Mm -hmm. That's what like yeah. flowed through what people probably thought of as rehearsed or I don't know, scripted. But to me, I was just like, wow, you were so, so like sincere and sure because of who she was to you. Because it was an authentic feeling mm -hmm. and it was the truth. And that's exactly, I 100% I get where you're coming from. Like, how could the truth be rehearsed? So, you know, yeah. like it was, yeah, yeah it well, was very natural. You know, somebody somebody wrote to me on Instagram the other day, and thank, thank you for that. But um, somebody wrote to me on Instagram the other day and they said, well, you know, um, you, when you said you spent 99% of your time with your father and 1% or with your mother and 1% of your time with your father, I mean, you were clearly coached. And I wrote back and I was like, no, I was being hyperbolic. And I knew yeah, it at the right. time. And by the way, and I told her, I was like, by the way, I was angry and I had every right yes. to be. That yes. doesn't mean that I was lying. Yes. Like nobody, nobody really believed that I, that I spent nine. The point was to be emphatic of, I didn't spend any time with this man. Mm -hmm. My mother was my whole world. That was the point of me saying that. Like I knew that that wasn't true. Like I knew I was being hyperbolic at that mm -hmm. age before I even understood what the word hyperbolic right. meant. Yeah. <laughs> but... I, I, I knew that I, I was trying to get the point across that like I knew my mother better than anyone mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as 
personal relations and I was with her and there's no way in hell that she was just going to leave me right. mm -hmm. by myself with this man mm -hmm. and get into a fight and throw credit cards at him. And it, no, there's no way. So, you know, I think, and again, this goes back to what I was saying at the, at the top of this conversation, which is that people will often, when you go through such extreme trauma, they will often project their own experiences upon yours as a way to understand that. And that's, look, that's only human nature. You know, I talk about it in my TED talk, like the, like the, um, the mirror neuron system, which is how we have empathy for one another. We try to understand situations like, you know, when terrorists fly, you know, planes into a tower or when somebody, you know, takes their own life tragically and leaves a family abandoned or somebody, you know, or, or there's a mass shooting into school or a husband murders a wife and buries her underneath a house in another state and then wants to carry on life with the mistress. Like we, we have to like, somehow we try to like justify this and say, well, why did this happen? And we, and we, yeah. tr we try to understand each other through this mirror neuron system. Right. And uh, you know, so then this projection sort of comes in like, well, how did you handle that? Or where, well, you could have done this and that because you're thinking yourself, well, I don't have those tools to deal with that. So clearly you probably did too. So there has to be something, there has to be some sort of sleight of hand in this situation that I'm not seeing. And it's like, there's no sleight of hand. It's just, this is just how the shit played out. And yeah, you yeah. either it's, it's, that's when the rubber meets the road. You yeah. either say to yourself, you know, like I had to do when I was 12 years old, you know, I was 11 when I testified at the grand jury and 12 when it went to trial. And on top of that, like the prosecutors, like they said, you don't have to testify. And I was like, over my dead body, like, yeah. I'm sorry like, to use my mother's phrase, over my dead body. Are you kidding me? And it came to find out later, like it was very necessary for me to testify. They just didn't yeah. want to pressure a child into that. Mm -hmm. They were like, we better step our game up. There's so much circumstantial evidence that my father probably would have gotten off, but they never told me that, you know, I didn't find this out until years later. And I, but I assumed as such, and there was no way that I wasn't going to stick up for my mother in court and tell mm -hmm. the truth because I knew, you know, my mother talked about, you know, all through my life is she would talk about the carousels. She loved carousel horses. And she would talk about carousels and she would say, you know, like in the, whatever the fifties, sixties, you know, you would go around the carousel horse and you would try to grab rings, right? For points. But if you grab the brass ring, you won the prize, right? So my mother would always say to me, grab the brass ring, like grab the brass ring in life. And I knew at that point right now, it's not a glamorous brass, brass ring. I'm not winning a prize, but I knew that that was the brass ring. That was my opportunity. It happened several times. The first time was when Dave Messmore, the investigator came to the house and my grandmother literally left the room to call my father. And I said, give me your business card. And that's how I, and I, and I told him, I said, my mother would never leave me. Like something has happened to her and she's probably dead. And I was scared out of my mind because I was trying not to cause a ruckus and let alert my father that I knew this, yeah. you know, but I took that one opportunity and then ended up you know, meeting with him at school. <laughs> Went in the next day to school. We came back from Christmas vacation and said, you need to call this man and get him down here right now. I need mm -hmm. to talk to him. And I gave him the whole background, right? So it was that. There was the, the opportunity to, you know, to, to testify at trial, the finding of the photographs of the house of my father's mistress in front of the fireplace wrapped in plastic, all of these things. You know, I always think about that and the, the opportunities that are presented to themselves. And, it, you know, and I talk to people a lot about, you know, with trauma, with leading yourself sort of through all of this and your way of dealing with it, right? And we all deal with these things differently, obviously. But the one thing that 
I have just become so aware of as an adult, especially since I started the podcast and interviewing other trauma survivors and other people, you know, true crime survivors, people that work in true crime, whatever, what have you, right? Because we've all gone through some sort of trauma, whatever that is, right? And I, um, I realize like when I get up and I look in the mirror every day, I can look in the mirror and go, I did everything I could. I gave it my all. I didn't hold back and I lived in integrity. Mm-hmm. And long after I am taking the dirt nap, I have left a mark on the world through film, obviously, but through mm-hmm. my sort of story, if you will, mm-hmm. that you can make it, you can survive and you'll be okay. And that was a really powerful message for me that I wanted I wanted to get out my entire life. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about like moving through, my, my podcast is called Moving Past Murder. You talk about like moving through these trauma, traumatic events and the things you do, but like, Part of what does that, what really, I mean, there's like this, this expression that somebody told me, you know, people who um, you go through unspeakable circumstances, like just, just unspeakable trauma, just, just stuff that just blows your mind. They are often left with a fire burning inside them that is inextinguishable, almost inextinguishable. And that was what happened when I woke up in the morning, December 31st, 1989, after hearing those thuds in the middle of the night and my mother wasn't there and my father said, mommy took a little vacation, Collier. And I was like, oh, it's game fucking on, man. And I haven't stopped since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's this thing that just, if you, you know, the internet slang, if you know, you know, if you know, you know, it's like, that's what drives you to just, yeah. It's not like get up every day and put two feet on the floor or anything like that. I'm very fortunate that I don't, I don't get, I mean, I get depressed or like, I mean, I get bummed out and I get depressed about stuff, but I am not, I do not experience depression, right? I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, And I never have. Um, But that is without a doubt what drives me to tell the story, help others, reach out, continue doing this work, do the podcast, make films, work with other survivors, tell stories, uh, you know, and get that message out because that is, ends up becoming like, not only, you know, it's like I made the film, I wanted to share the story. I wanted to honor my mother, but then it's like, it just gets, the rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper and deeper and Mm -hmm. deeper. Right. And it just becomes everything. It becomes like your mission. And I think that that's what some people just, don't understand is where that like drive comes from yeah just i mean hearing you say these things and and you know obviously our traumas are extremely different um but the three of us have experienced you know pretty significant traumas and i think that that sometimes places it's it's sort of like this lonely club where for sure and and i i have personally experienced and i'm wondering if you have experienced this as well where it is very isolating because people don't know what to say to you and people don't know what to do and they don't know how to act around you or they don't, yeah. I mean, it's, 
do you experience that at all? Do you find any kind of loneliness in that in that sense? Oh, sure. Sure, absolutely. There is without question that definitely happens all the time. And it is just yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really really hard because you know, they you're trying to not tiptoe really, but you're, you're trying to like, you know, it's a lot for them to, to handle and yes, they're trying to yeah, tiptoe yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, but you, but like, there's nothing that they can say to you that's going to throw you no. off, but there's something right. that you can do. It's like, there's, a, it's like the great, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. You know that you could say some shit to them. Like they can say whatever they want to me and, it, and yeah. yeah, it might be stupid or ignorant, <laughs> but I'm not going to like, I may go, well, that, that's a little, that's a little, you know, solipsistic or that's a little like, eh, it's a little uneducated or whatever, but it's not going to rattle me. I mean, you gotta, right. you gotta be pretty tough to rattle me. But there's something that I'm definitely probably going to say to someone that's going to be like, what? And that, like knock them back. Like, yeah. what? And I'm like, oh, damn, I shouldn't have said yeah. that. Like, yeah. It's even when I joke on the podcast, I joke about – my mother had such a sardonic sense of humor. Like the, one of the last thing she said – one of the last things she said to her best friend that night before she was killed is she says, oh, he showed up with his mother so he can't kill me tonight. Oh, my gosh. And that's in the film. And – I it's missed that like, too. I missed that as well. We use that as well. You're, this is, I don't know if it's a trauma thing, but that humor, that it's just, that, it's a response. It's like a coping mechanism. And I, for I've gotten better at because at least, because I used to like, Sarah's like, it's not a party game, Amy. But like, I used to like just fuck with people because they're like, how long have you been married? I'm like, well, he's been dead for three years or whatever. Like, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's sometimes it's so heavy living with it and talking to new people about it that sometimes it's just the only thing you can do is like I don't know make, make a light joke of it and make or, light of it yeah whether that's right 100%. or wrong I don't know but and it's your right to do that but I have people sometimes that will excoriate me and be like well how can you have a sense of humor about this and I'm no like, that's not they don't have what the right would you, not there what would no, you what no, would you no. what would you rather me do would you rather me sit here and sulk yeah. about it yeah and and, no. and as my like podcast listenership grows right and as like my audience base increases right people are understanding more and more that he's just wired this way and you either like it or you don't. Exactly. <laughs> like there's exactly. no, and I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm just not the guy that's going to sit here and go, Oh, it's just like, bummed. I get bummed out about really stupid shit. I don't get bummed out about the big things in life. I go, okay, well that's, that's tough or this, that, and the other, I get bummed out about the girl, you know, ghosting me. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's, that's fine. Like, there's plenty of fish in the sea. Those are the things that, like, that rattle me. And I, and I also get frustrated myself. Like, why does that matter? Like, why are you so upset about it? Well, it connects to, like, larger trauma, obviously, of opening yourself up. Bring someone else into your life, right? And it's a female energy, and so that, therefore there's there's scarring there and whatever. It's, you know, my therapist talked to me about this, like, like a week ago. He's like, well, yeah, it's that female energy. So it is this. So I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Okay, I see where you're coming from. I see where we're going with that. And he's a he's a certified or quali- certified <laughs> qualified, therapist. Qualified, so he's qualified. He's, qualified. he's a qualified. He's qualified. He's certified. He's got everything. But, but in all seriousness, and I get upset with myself and I go, well, just, you know, everybody deals with that shit. And then I have to go to like friends and be like, so does this bother you when this happens? They're like, oh my God, yes. Like, and then they come to me and they go, so I have this devastating trauma that has just happened or that's happening or whatever. What would you, like, I come to them with like the stupidest of shit and they're just like, oh, it's great. I'm like, oh God, man. 
thank you so much. That really saved me just a lot of time. They're looking at me like, are you absolutely mental? Like all the shit you've been through and all the shit you've done for us. And this is what, this is what we can do. We're happy to do this for you, Collier, but yeah, literally we're good. You don't owe us anything. Like, thank you for being there for us. And when our brother-in-law was killed, you you know, Mm -hmm. by a, by a drunk driver and you were there for our family or whatever it is. Right. (laughs) But I'm like, no, this situation, (laughs) I guess it does. Right. It's the compartmentalization perhaps. I don't you've kind of wired, you're wired for sound. <laughs> like you're wired for the big stuff. Wired it's like, okay, sound. the big stuff has, has happened from such a young age that you've grown up with it, th- like weaving throughout your your neurons. Like we've we've been talking about this on our show too, sort of like the, the way that your brain wires itself, especially in those formative years. So, you know, those are things that you are, co- you have the coping mechanisms, you have the equipment, the tools, the knowledge to deal with those things. It's the little things that are like, oh shit, Mm -hmm. what the fuck do I do with this? Like, and, and another aspect of that too, that I think kind of comes in is like trusting your feelings because you feel so big Mm -hmm. for these big things, but you know how to deal with them. So it's like, if you get these feelings coming in for these little things, it's like, can I trust that feeling? Is it, am I feeling too much? Yeah. Am I feeling, you know, is this, am I too emotional? Is it too much? Or people think like you've survived the worst thing. So how can any of these little things bother you? Right. Oh, for sure. And they're just like, well, he's, you know, and uh, all people will be like, well, we'll call your, yeah, we just figured you'd be fine. I'm like, but yeah, but I wasn't. Right. I wasn't actually fine. At some point I do get tired of like, figuring it all out, right? Yeah. But it's funny you said that because I was just thinking, I've recently had to come to grips and it really happened after making the film, confronting my father, because also there was this parallel of me making the film to put this case to bed, to to everything, but also the impetus was, I wanted to find out why my father murdered my mother. Like at the end of the day, like that's what I needed to know. And ultimately, like I don't get that, answer if you will but i do get the answer i mean it's sort of the beautiful thing about the the documentary is that some people are like but he didn't tell you it's like but yeah but you're missing the point Mm -hmm. it's uh you know that's why the ted talk is called what if the answer you seek is not the answer you need it's like Mm. this is because you don't necessarily get what you're expecting but you get what you need and for me if my father had said well this is what i did this and this is it i would have even more questions i wouldn't be able to move past it yeah something a guy from the new york times when he saw our premiere in New York, he was, he was interviewing me. He says, he said, there's three seconds in the film that tell me everything I need to know about you. What you said to your father after he, you're in the room with him and you're talking to him about everything and, and he's just not giving you the answer. And he's just, you know, just more bullshit on top of more bullshit. He says, you stand up, you give him a hug and you say, I love you, pop. And I was like, well, yeah, it's my father. And... <laughs> And he just was like, he's like, do you understand how rare that is? Like, do you do you really understand how this man literally just sits in front of you yeah. and just denies everything? And he's got these stories and he's it just he's a horror of a human being. And you have the compassion and the and the awareness to hug him and say, I love you, Pop. It was a really surprising moment. He's like, I would punch my father in the face. I would kill him. I'd be, I, they, they, they keep me in prison. He's like, I don't think you understand. And I'm like, I, I guess I don't. I really don't because I'm not wired that way. Yeah, it was a very touching and also I, my jaw dropped. I was like, what is he doing? I <laughs> you mean, know, the entire scene of you interviewing him. God, there was so much to read into that with both of you guys. But I just thought when you, at the end, when you stood up and hugged him, I was just like, 
whoa. Yeah. And and but then I try to think about my husband when he did something terrible, I would have probably still Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like when you love someone who's it's almost like you knew he was sick. Like you could look at him and be like, I know you're lying and you can't tell me <laughs> that you're not lying right. when you said to him, I don't sure. believe you. He's just going to live with that forever. Like he is going to go to his death with that story. I have to tell you, I mean, we don't know each other very well, but I was so proud of you. <sighs> I had this fire in my stomach. Like, you could tell us about how it felt to say, I don't believe you. Did you feel a sense of relief? Was it something that just needed to be said? Like, or did you feel sick? Yeah, tell like us rest about of it us. a little bit. Well, no, I mean, th there's two moments that really, so there's three. There's me saying that to him at the end, which I didn't really remember. And then he said that and I was like, oh, and now it's constantly stuck in my mind. There's also the moment where I sit down with him and he comes in the room and he says to me, and he's in a great mood. And I say to him, I say, you know, I'm telling him while I'm there. And I say, you know, one of the things I've always been interested in is the consequences of violence. Ever since you murdered my mother, when I say those words, yes, all the air gets sucked out of the room. His whole face just changes, his whole demeanor. And that's the first time that I ever said that to him. So that was a big moment. At that moment, I said, I'm taking back the power. Yeah. Let's cut the shit. Here's where I'm here. Everything I've been doing my entire life has led to this moment. Again, brass ring, right? I know it's never going to happen again. You know, it's not, it, it's, this is the moment. I didn't realize the sort of overall impact of that particular scene was going to have on others because I was mm. just looking for my answer and I wanted to put his feet to the fire. But then afterwards, when one of the prison, because they were furious, they were. I want to talk about, I want to talk about that too, because yeah. Sarah brought that up and I thought, oh my God. So they didn't know what you were going to talk to him about. Well, here's the thing is I pitched them because they said, no, you can't film here. And it was all this. And I was like, look, I was like, this is a great moment for my father to share with me why this happened. This will be a come to Jesus moment. It's the prodigal son returns. It's the father and son reunite. It's going to be this big, beautiful moment. What I did not tell them is that I know my father's a sociopath, which honestly they know too, but they were not happy because they had brought their website guy and a photographer and they thought it was going to be this big, like <laughs> crowning achievement moment for the, the, prison rehabilitation be a prison promo yes <laughs> and i'm not saying that i didn't touch upon that nerve when talking to them because i honestly felt like look if my father could admit this then we would have this sort of moment of reconciliation which would be really great what i didn't tell them is i thought that you know that the the likelihood that that was going to happen is that was either going to happen or i was going to buy a powerball ticket and i was going to either win the powerball or he was going to do that that's what the odds were that i knew <laughs> And, but I just didn't tell them that. Right. So I would prefer to win the Powerball, but, um, but, but no, but in all seriousness, you can do a lot of good with that money. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, but exactly. in all seriousness, like I read him that letter, right. That I wrote when I was 13 years old, he read it, sent it back to me, wrote refused. Right. And basically I was pleading with him to please come clean about what he did. He wouldn't give that to me. I had had that letter and I said to Barbara, Koppel, the director, and my friend John Morrissey. So what do you want to do? And Barbara's like, well, I think you should read the letter. And I was like, you know, did you read the letter, Barbara? She's like, yeah, it's heartbreaking. And um, I think you should read the letter. And John <laughs> looks over at me and he goes, call your, I sat with your dad for about 45 minutes. 
before we filmed his interview. Now he knows that I know you. All he did was talk about himself. He asked no questions about me. He came with all these documents showing what a good prisoner he is, a model prisoner, all this stuff. It was like, it was all about him. And he's like, he knows how close we are. Wouldn't she just say, hey, like, how is my, how is my son? Is my son really like the way, is he struggling? Like, what, tell me the truth. He's not here. Cut the shit. What's he like? What is he doing? Is he in all kinds of trouble? Is he doing mm -hmm. well? Like, what's his life like in LA? Like, tell me, because he tells me one thing. I don't, I think that's what I would have wanted to know as a father. But instead, all he did was talk about himself. And, and John goes, I'd let him have it. Read the letter. And I was like, okay. I'm yeah, the yeah. Letter. And then it unfolds just how everyone sees it for in the annals of film history. And it's, uh, you know, it was mm -hmm. a really, it was frustrating talking to him because, you know, you want these answers and to get back to your question was being in there. It was, it wasn't like a vengeance or there was like none of that. Like, oh, I'm going to prove this. There was no ego involved in it. It was literally just like, and that's why I'm pleading with him, you know, in the room, I'm like, I'm asking you to come clean for not only for me, but for you, because your future is at stake here. Right. That's what I say to him, because meaning he's up for parole soon. This is an opportunity for him because that's what he, he wanted. He thought I was helping him. And if you want to, this is your opportunity for you to actually come clean and for us to move on right here. Oh I gave him that opportunity. So again, it's one of those situations where. I honored my mother when I was a child. I testified, I put this man in prison, right? But I also gave him the opportunity to come clean, to get out. And nobody seems to understand that is that I gave him, I didn't go in there to get you to, for a gotcha moment. I went in there. It wasn't a revenge thing. It was now it was my whole life was leading up to this point, 100%, but I didn't go in there with like, I'm going to avenge. I'm going to make you look like a scumbag. I mean, I knew I had him. I knew that he was probably going to behave like this, but I also literally pleading to him like, you have this opportunity. I am giving you this. I am giving you this. This is my olive branch that I do have absolutely, everyone thinks I'm crazy for extending. Like this is something, this is a gift for you. He couldn't do it. So again, looking myself in the mirror. Now I did all. I did everything I could and I'm pleading. I have a tattoo on my, on my forearm. It says the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. It was from a, a novel by um, David Foster Wallace called infinite jest. It is a very powerful quote because I'm, I'm saying to him, like, you know, like let this be behind us. <laughs> you know, if you want this, like, here's the opportunity yeah. and he couldn't do it. And you know, it was frustrating. But in that moment, I realized you put so much into this in your head, like this is the moment I'm going to find my answer. But I also went to with a lot of peace of like, look, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to do me and I'm going to try to get what I came for, what I've been looking for my whole life. And, and it was just really just like some authenticity, some sincerity, just to not look at the person as a shell of a person, like there, there would be some emotion genuine emotion and remorse, which there's not right. And it's, it's staggering, but it was also this relief that I just realized because for so long too, the thing is with this type of trauma is you grow up your whole life 
thinking, what if I'm like him? I just don't know it. What if I am capable of something like this? What if I am this way? What if I do this? What if I do that, right? And anyone who is a self-actualized or self-realized person thinks that, like, you know, or an empathetic person. They're always, I'm always trying to reevaluate how I handle situations just to make sure I'm doing it the right way. And imagine growing up with that. And also imagine hearing that from partners, lovers, girlfriends, friends, Oh, watch out for that guy. He could be just like his father. So you have that in the back of your mind. And I had that moment right there when all this was happening. I was like, oh. The same blood may course our veins, but I have nothing like my father. And I never will be. And it was a scary. I was shaking. And I was shaking at the end when he left the room because I was like, somebody just tell me that I'm not really into him because it was just, there was just this disconnect. I was just frigid and I'm relieved. Like, I'm not that guy. I'll never be yeah, that guy. Yeah. I'm so glad that you were able to come to that feeling and that conclusion and to know that in I'm yourself. I'm so lucky. I'm so And regardless lucky. of what other people say. It's such a, cr not many people, everybody looks at it like, and they're like, oh, that's so frustrating. Oh, that just, that psycho fucking, blah, 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 whatever the hell. I'm like, no, I'm like, do you understand how fortunate I am? I mean, I say it, like, I'm like the most fortunate person mm -hmm. because not many people get that. Because even though there's no closure in the traditional sense, there is that because I go, well, I'm not that person. Sure. And I can work with that. I can work with that mm -hmm. now. That's something that you just don't Yes. Yet. Yeah. That's a beautifully healing moment. And I'm, I'm just so happy you got to have that. Yeah, me too. Was he a pathological liar, like as a child? Well, I don't know. Well, oh, oh, so pathological liar as far as like, like when I was his kid. Like small things. Oh my God. My father would have these stories about like being a naval pilot. And, and like, I remember people would tell me, and I remember the stories, but I remember them saying, yeah, I remember when we went out to dinner with you and your father was telling all the other doctors like how he got shot down in the south pacific and his parent the ejection seat wouldn't work and he and he couldn't get any crash and he used his knife to like cut himself out of the cockpit and save himself <laughs> and swam two miles to an hour. like something absolutely ridiculous and i had heard this story growing up and i was like you know and everybody wants to believe their dad's a hero but like that's like that's like dude you're not clint eastwood mm -hmm. like you know what i mean there's not like a second take here like we're just rolling for sound now i mean uh but my father would tell these just crazy stories like vietnam my father wasn't even in vietnam I, I, he was in the navy when vietnam was going on but he was a doctor here in the united states like i don't think he ever set foot, foot off yeah. of u.s soil you know what i mean so he had these crazy stories about being he kept telling me for years oh i'm gonna get my my uh, fighter pilot helmet because i flew with the blue angels which is a, like a squadron that flies for air shows and stuff it's very prestigious and he's like i would fly with the blue angels i have my blue yes. angels helmet i'm gonna get you my helmet and all this stuff and uh, you know and i kept thinking daddy when are you gonna get your fighter helmet because like top gun had come out and he was talking about like top gun and you know it was like i was a kid right and you know and you don't want to think your dad is like lying to you but, you know, they are really fantastic. He would have these stories. And, of course, he used those stories on the women and all that stuff. When you were going back through, like, your B-roll and, and, and things 
from filming and you could hear the audio of the prison staff basically immediately moving to coddle your father. It was like, are you okay? Did you have any idea this conversation was going this way? We need to get this man to mental health services immediately. It was almost comical. Like, was, I, was like, I was like, what is happening? So I, did, I never heard that audio particularly, but I knew what the situation was happening because I know I am so ingrained in the prison system. I have, been, I have probably visited my father a hundred times before that. I was, I actually would go into the prison years before that and teach filmmaking and how to use editing software and Photoshop to prisoners. Go into the actual prison where I would sit with That's my father really cool. if yeah. I was in a room with him, no guards, no bars, no nothing, sitting here doing stuff. He would watch some of my work. And one of the best memories that I really have of my father is when I came back from using the restroom and he was watching my like music video I did with Billy Ray Cyrus. And he was just like really mm. proud. I could tell that he was having a real yeah. genuine moment. And I don't get many of that. I did, never got yeah. any moments with, uh, with him ever. And I could actually see that he was like watching it and he was taking that in like, Oh, he's, this kid's really yeah. special for, for a brief moment. And then it gets back to him. But I think that, um, I was used to that. By the way, the director of the Ohio department of corrections, she's yelling at my producer in a concrete room and we can hear her. She's a good 30 feet away in a concrete room, screaming at the top of her lungs. Like, why the fuck was that? That little motherfucker. She was so angry. But her assistant oh said to me, she goes, well, that didn't really go as planned. Um, but I really do feel like your film is going to do a lot of good for a lot of people. And I was like, that's a really nice moment. And she also let on that she didn't quite believe his story anyways, because he tells the same story to everyone. And that they all mm -hmm. just kind of tolerate him in a way. And, you know, because he's mm -hmm. a good prisoner and he does a lot of stuff and administrative things. But... I got that sense, but yeah, no, I knew they were very concerned about that. And they forbid the priest from talking to me. He was going to talk to me the next day, but he couldn't give an interview. But he was telling me, he's like, you know, prison turns men into babies. He was actually making sure that I was okay. He was like, are you okay, Bumper? Because this one, my father calls mm -hmm. me Bumper. So he could tell that I was really shaken up and that some heavy shit had gone down. Obviously, the way everyone was behaving, they all knew. So that was really interesting. Um, but credit to them, they let us again stay the whole hour when I thought for sure we're gonna, I kept looking over yeah. like, are they gonna kick us out now? You know, right. uh, but they weren't. And, um, you know, to their yeah. credit, they they upheld their end of the bargain and they were fantastic to deal with. I would gladly go in there again if they ever allowed me to set foot in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> I think your, your story and your documentary is so different from other people's. Unfortunately for them, fortunately for you, yeah. because you had such control and directional movement of it. And it truly was the right way that it was done. A hundred percent. It's that's one of the things I realized recently. And in, in, you know, is because when I started the podcast, moving past murder, I it wasn't only until recently when I interviewed Tara Newell, who is famous for, you know, killing dirty John, you know, this, so there's the series Bravo dirty John. And she, is the real life person that, you know, this man came to kill her, the knife got out of his hand, she ended up killing him after he stabbed her twice. And she's half his size, you know, she was 25 at the time. And he was this psychopath was going to kill her whole family. I mean, because he had been wrong as sociopath, narcissist, the, the same thing. But I had seen how, you know, discover that, you know, they made a tremendously successful podcast out of it using her interviews. 
and then made a shit ton of money on it. It was a massive coup for Wondering, which turned into a television series, which at that time was signed for two seasons with Bravo, and is now a franchise with Netflix getting ready to release the third season. It's a franchise. And, you know, she never got anything. She got like mm-hmm. you know, a very small, very an honorarium, if you will. And they're like, well, we, you, you gave your story as public domain so we can use it. I, so I became over the last like several months, very mm-hmm. keenly aware of the fact that victims are exploited this way. And I knew that journalists tell stories, podcasts tell stories. There are shows about this. There are shows that are created, movies are created, whatever that is, right? At the same time, I did not realize how fortunate I am mm-hmm. because I was able to take care of my, take control of my story from Jump Street. Even with, I was just interviewed on BuzzFeed and they were asking me about the Forensic Files episode. And I was like, yeah, Forensic Files came to me and asked me if I wanted to be in the episode. And I said, mm-hmm. they offered me $2,500 and I said, add another zero and talk, we can talk. And they right. said, absolutely not. I said, I, I didn't think so, but I, it's worth a shot. I was like, I'm not gonna help you sell a television show. But I'm glad they did the episode. It's one of the most successful episodes of Forensic Files. It's how people find me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. how I got the deal for, you know, it led to a murder in Mansfield for sure. It was one of those things I could point to and say, hey, there's interest in this case. Um, because, the, you know, I was the driving factor in making the film. It wasn't right. somebody came to me and said, oh, we'd like to do a film about you. It's the other way around. And then people will now pick up and do this because true crime is so profitable, so hot. They tell these victim stories where I was able to take ownership and control of it. and. I didn't realize how rare that was. And I'm so grateful again, I'm so grateful because I had control over everything. It's such a unique position that I've been in. And so, you know, Tara and I are starting a podcast called uh, Survivor Squad, where we are gonna talk to survivors and let survivors tell their own stories and not have someone else do it. I love that, yeah. And it's really cool. It's It's really becoming a big point of activism for me in the last several months of like, oh, this happens, these people are exploited. I had no idea. And you know who else has no idea? People that consume true crime. They don't realize yes. that this is happening to a yes. certain extent. And not all of these people have been, not all these podcasts have been, all these shows have been. Some people have genuine intent, like are great podcasters mm-hmm. and are great with stories and do even pay people to be on the podcast. We want to honor your story. We, we make money so you get something out of it. And mm-hmm. that is awesome. You know, they respect the victims. But some people just say, oh, we're going to tell the story and, you know, who cares? I mean, there's a podcast tour that's going on right now. And there's a victim's family. It's like, we don't want this story out there. They're like, we don't care. We're going to talk about it. And we're going to make money selling out theater shows. And we make money off our Patreon that has, you know, 50,000 subscribers. And, you know, the, 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 and these people need to be excoriated for that behavior because it's beyond the pale. It really is, especially when yeah. somebody comes to you, like you make so much money already. And now you're going to exploit another person's story when a family comes and says, don't exploit the story. Right. Under the guise of journalism, yeah. like that's not fair. Right. That's not cool. But I've become aware of this, and it's become a big point of my. I think sort it's of another thing. powerful way that you're gonna share your story. I gotta turn my sights on something new. You know, it's like, oh, okay, now we're this is okay. This is but where we're going. Look at you. You're just like that's such a thing. And true crime fans, we are. Yes, we do consider like we worry about that the exploitation. And then when you told us about Tara, I was like, you're right. Like it wasn't something we were aware of. So I'm glad that you're speaking up again. You know, letting people know these things and then letting victims have the voice. It's their it's their freaking story. Letting them tell the story as it was in their mind, which is the only really way it went Mm -hmm. um, is just really powerful. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you um, for having me. It was a me. real pleasure talking I, to you. I, I could talk and... all day, but I know I've got an antsy director I've got to get back to. But I, um, <laughs> you guys can, you know, your audience can find me. Uh, CallYourLandry.com is my website. The podcast is called Moving Past Murder. You can find me on TikTok, Instagram, uh, Twitter. My handle is at CallYourLandry. YouTube, I put, I release new episodes every Friday of the podcast 
on all the streaming devices, Apple, the streaming services, Apple, Spotify, Audible. We will, we'll link it all for them. We'll link it all up. We are so grateful to Collier and his willingness to be vulnerable with us in sharing about his healing journey. If you want to hear Collier tell his full story, check out his documentary, A Murder in Mansfield on Discovery Plus and his podcast, Moving Past Murder on your favorite podcast provider. And let's remember to stay wild and weird warriors. We love you. This episode was brought to you by Amy Baumgartner and Sarah Simone. The theme song and our other music is provided by Epidemic Sound. This episode was mixed, mastered, and produced by Sarah Simone. To help us keep making episodes just like this, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash unqualifiedtherapistsinc. If you have a mental health journey you'd like to share, email us at unqualifiedtherapists at gmail.com, or you can reach out on our website, www.unqualifiedtherapists.com. Until next time, warrior, hold on. We're going to make it. Yeah,